You are listening to the Passion City Church Podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart, and it's a continuation of a series about Jonah. And I'm excited about where we are today. So if you got your scriptures with you. We're in Jonah chapter four. If you don't, I want to read it to you. It's a short chapter. I'm going to read you Jonah chapter four and it's going to be weird. And then we'll pray and uh, jump into it this morning. So Jonah chapter four, beginning in verse one says this, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my own country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to give, save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when the dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. And he said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Let me pray for us. Lord, I want to thank you for the good news today, God, that your grace is alive and active in the hearts and lives of people. We are not just a people listening to stories of what God did long ago. We are people living under the grace of God, active even now in the world, taking people who are, in some of our minds, way too far gone and bringing them home, bringing peace to the chaotic, bringing safety to the disturbed, bringing hope to those who are grieving and feel lost. Thank you, God, that your grace is alive, not just out there in the world and not just in a book, but alive right now in the Howard Theater and in us. And so God, move as we look at your word. Help us see what you want us to see. Help us understand it, God, what it is you think about and what it is you care about. And God, I pray it would affect what we think about and more than anything, what we care about today. And I want to ask you guys, if you're willing, for you to take a second and ask him, say, Lord, please teach me today. And then if you would, please pray for me, that the Lord would use me and I'd be helpful to you. Well, Father, we love you. 
and we trust you. Use this time. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're wrapping up a series today on the revolutionary love of God, and we've been looking at it through the book of Jonah. And something really weird is going to happen in Jonah chapter 4. And we read it, you saw it in verse 1, where it says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, we're going to talk in a minute about what displeased Jonah. But what's weird is that we're at the end of the book of Jonah, and Jonah's upset. You go, what's he doing? This is chapter four of a four-chapter book. This is the happily ever after section. This is the ride off into the sunset. You're not supposed to have words like displeased or words like angry. This is where everything's supposed to be happy, Jonah. Haven't you ever been to summer camp? (laughs) I don't know if you grew up going to camp. I did. I've told stories before. My camps were a little bit weird. They didn't have all the stuff your camps maybe had, like ropes courses and friendship, things like that. Our camps were really weird. We would be on college campuses in the backwoods of Mississippi, just kind of all hanging out. People drinking 40s, playing poker, climbing buildings, carrying knives. Uh, It was strange. But on the last night of camp, man, everyone would get saved. And there would be this powerful spiritual moment and powerful emotional moment. And as the band played, and as the speaker spoke, everyone would start crying. And we would have this incredible emotional experience. People are surrendering their lives to God and weeping and hugging each other. And there in the midst of that moment, they would always put a mic in front of us. We'd have open mic night. And people would get up there and they would have these experiences of God moving in power and they wanted to try to explain it. And, and some of them would get up there and be like, man, I just got saved tonight. And people were like, I think he got saved last year and the year before that. And it was like, that's not really how it works, but okay, he's feeling it. My favorite were the kids that didn't even really understand. They just knew something was happening in the room. So they'd start crying, get up and be like, I love my grandma. And you're like, okay, somebody help him. I mean, that's, that's awesome. But uh, on and on they would go. But for most of us, we had this powerful moment with Jesus. And as we got up in front of people, we were trying to articulate how our lives were never going to be the same. And it was interesting because guys would get up there and they'd be like, guys, I just, he's changed my life. I will never struggle again. Like, I just think I'm going to be pure and holy in every way for the rest of my life. And the rest of us were like, he's right. It's been such a good week here. And on and on, we would feel that. that God's moved in us. And so we were just going to leave camp and, and just soar home. And suddenly love everybody and sprinkle Jesus dust on all our former enemies and and never struggle again. And we would just tell these great stories of how we were all going to be changed. And so I remember it was so weird the year where one kid got up there and he got on the mic. And he got up there and he was like, guys, I want you to know I've been coming to this camp every single summer. He said, I believe Jesus changes lives. I believe he's changed mine. But every time I talk about how everything's going to change and I go home and I still struggle. And so I'm not despairing. I'm not giving up hope. I just know when I go home, there's some things there and it's going to be hard. And I just wanted to say it's going to be hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he walked off. And we were all like, what are you doing? This is the end of camp. You're supposed to be talking about how to keep the spiritual high going. That's what we used to say to each other, which is always a little bit weird to, you know, reference drug use as a way to talk about intimacy with God, but we'd all do it. How do we keep the high going? Like, is this right? And you're like, God, man, you're killing the high. (laughs) And he didn't sound at all like camp. But you know what's weird is, is he sounded like the Bible. And what's weird about this moment is the book of Jonah, and, and, and I'm among the people who think Jonah wrote this. How else would we get these stories, right? 
But it's interesting because I read a lot of biographies and in biographies, a lot of them, the people who write them, whoever they're writing them about are their heroes. And so basically they're just, they're just describing Jesus just at a different era as they're trying to describe some guy. They're like, it's basically Jesus, but during the civil war or like Jesus in uh, Europe in the forties. And there's just all these books about how this person was just sinless and perfect. But if you read autobiographies, sometimes people are more in touch with the fact that, that things aren't always great and they're not always that great. And here in the book of Jonah, if you've not been with us, Jonah has an amazing experience with God. And do I think you can have amazing experiences with God in moments like this? Yes, I'm not downplaying camp. I think God can move powerfully emotionally and powerfully spiritual in your life in events. I think some of you, that's going to happen today. But what's amazing about Jonah is he has an amazing experience with God. And then he leads an incredible ministry moment in Genesis chapter three of seeing a whole nation come to repentance. And that should be the story. And then I led everyone to repentance. Credits roll, right? But Jonah includes chapter four, where after all that, he's struggling. And I think he does that because God loves you and God loves me. And the reality is, even though you might know God, there's still struggle. We're all going to struggle. And so here you get in Genesis chapter four and Jonah's still struggling, even with the grace of God changing him, even with the grace of God using him to change other people, he'll still struggle. And so will you, right? And so this morning is about, I think, our greatest struggle. And you see it in verse one, it says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. Now the big question is what displeased Jonah and that but gives you an indication. It's a contrast from what just came before. Something happened and it made Jonah upset. And you gotta look back to the verses before that. It was when after Jonah had told Nineveh, you guys are off course and God is gonna judge you. When Jonah declared that to Nineveh, they began to repent. And in Jonah chapter three, verse eight, the king declares, let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, which was a sign of mourning and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is at hands. Who knows God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it, but it displeased Jonah and he was angry. So what made Jonah angry? The repentance of Nineveh and God's relenting on bringing them calamity. Now we talked about this if you've been journeying with us. The book of Jonah is written with a lot of poetry and it's written with a lot of humor. And Hebrew humor is about wordplay and you get wordplay here. Basically there's a word in Hebrew that's the word bad And it can be used in a lot of ways. It can be used about moral bad. It can be used about something bad happened to you, like a calamity. Or it can be used like, I feel bad, like I don't like something. And it plays with that in this text because it uses that same word to describe the Ninevehs were doing something that was bad. God was going to bring judgment on them, which is bad. And then it says Jonah here that he felt bad. And so they messed with it there. Nineveh repented of their bad. So God didn't do bad to them. And that made Nineveh, he felt, or Jonah feel like that was bad. But what was weird is when you want to emphasize something in Hebrew, you don't have a word like exceedingly or very, you just repeat a word. So literally Nineveh repented of its bad. So God relented of his bad. And Jonah thought that was bad, bad. (laughs) Jonah didn't like that God was forgiving them. And you realize not just in here, you realize that was the problem from the very beginning of Jonah. In verse two, it says, and he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? 
That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than live. What's Jonah saying? He's telling you why he ran in the first place. When God said, go preach to Nineveh and he ran the opposite direction, it wasn't because he was scared of public speaking. It wasn't because he felt like he was bad at evangelism. It's because he hated the Ninevites. And he didn't want God's mercy to go to them. And so he went and preached judgment. And when they heard that you're wrong, they repented and God forgave. And Jonah was like, I knew you were going to do it. I knew you were going to forgive him. I knew you were like that. And I'm so mad, right? Because Jonah wanted grace for himself, but not grace for them. And so God asks him, do you do well to be angry? He calls God's grace bad. And Jonah says, is your anger good? And what's interesting is Jonah doesn't answer. He just storms off, which makes him think, yeah, yeah, I think it is. Now, what's Jonah's issue with the Ninevites? Is he just a full-blown racist? Kind of, but it's a bit more nuanced than that. There's more going on in there than just that. Why does he hate the Ninevites? Well, if you look at Jonah, you'll see, if you look back in history, he's probably got Nineveh's past and Nineveh's future in view. Because in the not too far past, Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria, the nation of Assyria had, had taken captive Jonah's people and they had secured tribute from them. And securing tribute isn't like, ah, we win, now you pay us taxes. It's we win and we walk into your villages and we take whatever we want. We take your food, we take your kid if I want your kid, take your wife, take your stuff, and you live off what we let you live off of. And so it's an extreme indignity. And Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, the people who had humiliated Jonah's people. So there was some baggage with Jonah with these people. I don't like these people. And there were other prophets in Jonah's day, like Amos, who warned the people of Israel, if you persist in disobedience, God's going to send us into exile beyond Damascus. Or Hosea said, Assyria will rule over us. They said, God is going to judge us through the Assyrians. So Jonah's looking and said, the Assyrians hurt me in the past. They're going to hurt me in the future. I don't like the Assyrians. You want me to go preach the message of grace to them? I don't want to do it. And so to defend Jonah, it would be kind of like, you know, if you were in a concentration camp and you got out of it and God said, hey, I want you to go preach my mercy to the Nazis. I don't want to do that. Or if you were a black man growing up in Mississippi in the 50s and 60s and beaten by racists, and God says, now I want you to go minister to the Klan. I don't want to do that. Or if someone murders your family, and God says, you go love that person, offer my grace to him. I don't want to do that. And so Jonah looks and says, God, I liked your grace for me, but I don't want your grace for them. They're the thems, God. I don't like the thems. Grace for me, judgment for them. Love for me, punish them, right? And that's Jonah's issue. What's Jonah's issue? His problem is with love. And our problem is with love. Now, some of you may hear that and you're like, Ben, I don't have a problem with love. I love everybody, right? I don't know what Jonah's problem is. Jonah needs to check himself, right? God is love. I'm love. We all love each other. Well, that's great. And you're like, I don't have any enemies, Ben. I mean, there's some people at work that I can't stand being around, don't like them, and secretly hope fail in life, but, but I, don't, <laughs> I don't hate anybody. What's interesting, the PR firm Weber Shandwick 
releases a report annually on civility in America. And the data is in on us that recently nine in 10 Americans have said the American culture is increasingly less civil and lack of kindness has reached epidemic proportion. There's an ugliness on the rise in America. And what is it? It's a lack of civility towards us. And you hear it in political discourse. I don't just debate your ideas. I attack you. You see it online. What is Twitter now? It's just people searching to be offended and then attacking the offender, right? And wanting to destroy him, right? And that destroying, that incivility can become hostility now so fast. So it wasn't that long ago, a dentist went hunting in Africa and shot a lion uh, that was named Cecil. Now am I defending shooting lions named Cecil? No. But what happened next to him was interesting. This dentist decided to go, shot a lion, named Cecil. People didn't like that. You shouldn't shoot lions. You shouldn't have done it. And you go, okay, that's a, that's a good conversation to have with this man. But what happened is, as the conversation started going online, people began to hate on this guy. They began to make fun of him publicly. Then he started receiving death threats. Peter put out a message that said that, that we hope you get hanged. Others then began to post his home address online. And he had to run. And incivility became hostility very fast. I heard on the news not that long ago, there was a debate about debt reduction. A debate about debt reduction. And one commentator said about the people on the other side of the debate, I wish they were all effing dead. Debt reduction! <laughs> I wish they're all dead! That's an increase in incivility, right? And yet we live in a world that does that. We have a TV that stokes the flames of it, right? Why does the news cycle so often churn up outrage? Because we buy outrage. We like outrage. There's something in us that likes an us versus them. I like the us's, I don't like the them's, right? And the world continues to push us that way. And let's divide Republican versus Democrat, conservative versus liberal, LGBT versus evangelical, CrossFit against normal people, <laughs> country music lovers versus those with taste, and on and on it goes. <laughs> and in none of that am I saying these issues don't matter. And in none of that am I saying we shouldn't have healthy debate. And I'm not saying we shouldn't disagree with each other, but I'm saying under the disagreement becomes I don't like you and I want you to go away. I want you to go away online. I want you to go politically, socially, maybe physically. I want you gone. I don't like you. And so before we judge Jonah too harshly, we got to look at us. There's something in us that just doesn't like other people, right? And it's dangerous. I like God's grace for me. I don't like God's grace for them, right? And God asks him, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah thinks, yes. Why? Because righteous indignation tastes delicious. We love it. We love to be right and then to stand up on high beneath those who are wrong and to tell them you're wrong. You disgust me. Banish from my sight. Right? <laughs> There's something wonderful about it. Tastes great. Right? And so we love those songs. Write another song about bad blood, Taylor Swift. We'll all buy it. Right? <laughs> Because I like grace for me, I don't want grace for them. 
I like God to love me. I don't want God to love them, right? And you know what's so weird about it? Is for Jonah, his issue is not doctrinal. It's not theological. Jonah quotes verbatim the Old Testament about God being gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's what God's like. And he said, I knew you were like that, and I don't like that. But all through this book, what have we been looking at? There's a tendency in us to run from the leadership of God. And there's a tendency in God to chase us and interrupt our self-destructive behavior. And we love that about him when it involves us or people we like. And so Jonah sings about the grace of God that will come and get him while he's drowning in Genesis chapter two. But when that same grace is shown to them, he calls it bad, right? And God calls him on it. And it's funny, when we look at that, we're meant to laugh at Jonah. That's how the text is written. Why? Because it's weird. It's weird that Jonah, who ran away from God and was saved by God, should now get mad that other people who are far from God are being saved. That's weird, Jonah. You should be on board with what God's doing. Jonah, if the grace of God has touched you, you should touch others with the grace of God. Or like we sang earlier, if it's the very breath of God in my lungs, then I should pour out his praise to other people, right? If you know grace, you show grace. If you've been touched by the love of God, you should extend the love of God. If his love loved you while you were yet enemies, you should even love your enemies. Not just the people you like. Everyone loves the people they like. Your love is supposed to break past those boundaries. Jesus broke in while you were his enemy and loved you and changed you. So you are meant to do the same and love your enemy and pray that God would use it to change them and to not do that to taste of the grace of God and to not extend the grace of God. To not do that is weird. He hasn't had an afternoon nap for years. Well, this is just the biggest day of his life. I don't know how to thank you. Oh, you just did that wonderful lunch. Oh, well, I do like to cook. Uh, you'll take some coffee, won't you? Yes, please. Oh, decaffeinated, of course. Right. <laughs> Hello? Yes. What? Really? Yeah, yeah, he's here. I'll tell him, okay. Thanks, bye-bye. Superman? Uh, that was my friend Betty. There's been an accident on the old river bridge. A trailer truck crashed through the barrier rail. It's hanging off the side of the bridge, and the driver's still in the cab. Oh, I'm sorry. I hate to make you rush off. Well, there's no rush. But the bridge... Oh, it's okay. I always get there on time. Come on, let's relax a little. It's unusual finding a good-looking girl like you alone like this. It's not right. It's weird. You're Superman! The Father saved you from certain destruction! And in that rescue, you were imbued with powers far beyond those of mortal men. 
the most natural thing for you to do is use them to save others. You should be getting that guy out of the cab on the old river bridge, not creepily hitting on a girl. You're Superman. And that's the point. You've been touched by the very son of God. Father God forgave you and didn't just forgive you, adopted you in his family and named you a son of God. You have his very breath in your lungs. You have his grace coursing through your veins. You are a child of God. And while we were enemies, Christ died for us. And so when we have enemies, we sacrifice for them. That's the most natural thing to do in light of the gospel, right? And so what Jonah's doing is weird. And when we pray for God to hurt, destroy, dismiss, get rid, or we are indifferent about the thems, we are far from the heart of God, and it's weird too. God loves messed up people. And if you walk with God, he will always aim you towards loving them, right? And I'll tell you how God will pull it out for you a lot of times. He'll do it by touching on your darling sins. That's what I call them. The ones that you love, right? So I remember I had a little nephew and a really sweet kid. I mean, just a very proper, one of those kids that's old for his age. You know what I mean? Like uh, when he was like four, he would wear like pleated dockers and like tuck his collared shirt in and be like, hello, cousin, how are you? And I'm like, you know, it's just crazy, but he's so polite. And um, his dad was telling me his story, man, he's just the sweetest kid. And he said, I wanted to teach him about money. And so I gave him some money. He's like, I gave him like, it was something crazy, like a hundred dollar bill or something. And he said, Ben, I gave it to him. And it was the funniest thing. Like as soon as he got it, he was like, yes, yes, right? And he said, when I handed it to him, I was like, all right, man. So we're going we're gonna to give some, we're going to save some. He's like, and then, you know, Christmas is coming up. So I thought you would use some of your money to buy gifts for your family whom you love. And he said, it was the craziest thing. As I said that to him, he was like, no, no, no mine, no. no." He was like, yeah, that's how you use money. Like it's entrusted to you. You can use it to buy gifts for your family. And he said, his face was just so downcast. He said, and then in a moment he was like, do we have any gift wrapping paper? He's like, yeah, all right, can I have some? Do we have any tape? Sure. So he said, he walked over to my desk and took a half used pencil wrapped it up in some paper, taped it, and wrote, for mommy, on top of it. Grabbed an eraser, put it there, wrapped it, for sissy, right? And on he went. And you realize, oh, man, I love my family, right? Till they try to touch my money, right? And then I don't love them, right? And that's how God will deal with us. You go, man, I love everybody. It's, it's, It's easy to love everyone generally, but when God starts to get to specifics, but Jonah, let's talk about the Ninevites. That's when it's like, whoa, you know? And when he starts tapping on us, to love people is to not view pornography because studies are showing that it doesn't just exploit the people who are on the screen, but it damages the people on the other side of it too. So if I really love people, I don't participate in a system that's damaging to, to women and girls. But if I want to watch it, what am I saying? Well, I want to watch them because it satisfies me and I love me more than I love them. We're meant to honor our parents, forgive our parents, love and cherish them. But if they hurt us, man, forgiving, uh, I feel better that I'm angry and I marshal and preserve resentment because it makes me feel strong. But that means you love you 
more than you love them, right? Loving humanity means I don't spend all of my income on toys and things that make me happy. It means when I look around the people around me in my city, my heart breaks for their needs and I meet them. And when I don't do that with my finances, I say to the world, it's because I love me more than I love you. Our greatest problem is with love. We are Jonah, right? And here's the interesting thing. What does God do with a people like that? God has blessed you with life and breath and everything else. And for you to take all the gifts of God and to not use them to bless the people he loves, what's God going to do with you? What's he going to do to Jonah? They say, hey, Jonah, come here, buddy. Come here, man. I told him. I told him to love these people. Amos, you're up, right? Is that what he does? No, God is not going to give up on Jonah. And he's not going to give up on you. God loves you right where you are. And he loves you too much to let you stay there. So his grace will come to you at your lowest and draw you to himself. And then his grace will go to other enemies too. And he will invite you to go with him to love them, right? God's not going to give up on Jonah. He's going to keep teaching Jonah. And he's going to do it using visual aids. Let's watch. So... Verse five, it says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now, the rest of the chapter, God's going to go to work on Jonah, right? And as he goes to work on him, Jonah is still pulling for judgment, right? So he goes out to watch the city and he's like, maybe God will change his mind. Come on, massive destruction, right? Like he wants Nineveh to go away, right? In verse six, it says, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Now, some of us, this is where you might feel a divergence from the Bible. You're like, I've never felt exceedingly glad about a plant. I don't know what that's about. It's the Bible being weird again. Well, this is the Middle East. It's like 100 degrees out there. So if you were out there and God let a plant grow over you, your head, give you some shade, you'd be loving on that plant, right? Uh, we don't know what that feels like now, but in a couple of weeks, we'll all be like, ooh, thank you, God, if like a ficus moves in that we can sit under. He loves this plant. But if you can't understand that love of the plant, just think about your own life, what we would call creature comforts. Something in your life that just makes you feel good, you love. For some of you, it's your technology, your computer, your gaming system, your laptop, your whatever. You wouldn't say it out loud, maybe to everybody, but you feel that. Like, the world's going crazy, life's hard, but if I can just get right here. Ooh, I got the latest one, and it moves fast. And I can download and go, and I can swipe, and I can do. And you just love having the latest computer. Some of you, maybe it's your car. That your car makes you feel happy. The world can be going crazy, but everything's right when you get in that vehicle, because it's an amazing ride, Right? Others of you, it's your wardrobe that you go, you know what? That guy may have got a promotion and I didn't. That guy maybe did better in that meeting, but all these guys look like scrubs. And, uh, but I know what's going on. And as soon as you get dressed in the mirror, you just look in the mirror and you're like, man, it's good to be the king. All right. And you just walk out knowing like, I'm going to, if everything else goes wrong, I know I look better than these people. Right. <laughs> or maybe it's your looks that you know that you're like, I may hate all these people. They may, may hate me back, but I'm just better looking than you. It's like that old quote from uh, Winston Churchill, you know, it's a heavy drinker. And this lady was making fun of him. And she said, Winston, you're drunk. And he said, yes, but you're ugly. 
and tomorrow I will be sober, right? I'm not advocating that kind of talk. But some of you, you may be like that. You're like, if everything else goes bad, at least I'm the prettiest one in the circle, and you can't deny that, right? Or maybe you're more like Winston, be like, hey, they may be prettier than me, but I'm smarter than all y'all. My wit's too fast, and I feel good about that, right? We all got little things in our life that make us feel good, right? Jonas is this plant. It's nice. Verse 7, but when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Interesting thing. When Jonah runs from God in Genesis chapter, or Jonah chapter one, God sends a great storm and a great fish to get Jonah. Here, as Jonah's running again, God sends a little plant and a little worm. Why? Because he's got the whole world in his hands, right? <laughs> from great fish to little worms. And God will use all of it to help his people have a heart that beats like his, right? All of creation is his, and he's going to bend it to help us. He loves you right where you are, and he loves you too much to let you stay there. So he appoints a worm to eat that plant, and it does. And the funny thing is, in the book too, everything responds to the promptings of God faster than the man of God. Do you see that? God tells the wind to blow, and it blows. He tells a fish to eat, and it will eat and vomit on command. He tells a plant to grow, and it grows. He tells a worm to eat, and the worm's like, yes, sir. All right, and it gets after it. Right? The person who's always resisting God is the guy that grew up in church. right? And it's meant to embarrass us that sometimes those of us who claim to be the most religious can be the most resistant to God. right? It's meant to shame us. And so here, God gives him a plant that he loves, and then God takes away the plant. Computer smashed. Wardrobe burned down, right? Car wrecked. It's over, right? Funnier guy comes to the office. Cuter girl enters the social circle. The world's ending, right? And then it gets worse in verse eight. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to win. Live, Jonah is a victim. His buddy, the ficus died. He doesn't want to go on. And God asked him, is it good to be angry about the plant? Do you do well to be angry about the plant? Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. God's got him. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. Came into being in the night, perished in the night. Should I not care about Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left, and also many cattle? See, God showed compassion for Nineveh. Jonah had none. So God gives him something to love. And he says, do you have pity, compassion, same word, on the plant? Yeah. Okay, so we found some compassion in you. You got some. So Jonah, let me ask you some questions. You pity a plant when a worm destroyed it. Should I not pity people that are being torn apart on the inside? You pity a plant that you didn't cause to grow. These are people I made. And so if you're sitting here and going, man, you're calling us to love our enemies. I don't want to do that. Benny, you don't understand the baggage of that. Yeah, we're, we're meant to be people who have received the love of God and extend the love of God. Love embraced becomes love extended. Those who know grace show grace. You go, how am I going to do that? God's going to give them the ways in this passage. How do we actually do that? 
Because I know what it is to be frustrated by people. When I first started ministry to college students, I know I came in and ministering to college students and I was leading this ministry on the campus of Texas A&M. Students would gather in this arena and we would lead worship. And I remember a student scheduled a meeting with me and I sat down with a student at a coffee shop and he said, hey man, I want you to know I lead a ministry that promotes unity among Christian organizations on campus. I said, dude, that's awesome. He said, yeah, and we have a unity event coming up. And I said, that's great. And he said, yeah, and it's going to be all week long. So Tuesday nights when your deal meets, uh, we're going to commandeer that. And I'm going to bring in a speaker and bring in a band, and we're going to lead your organization. I was like, say what? Like, you can't do that. Like, I have a board of directors that I answer to. You're like 19. Like, I'm not handing the keys over to you, to the ministry I run. I can't do that, man. Like, I have an obligation. And I remember he looked at me in that moment. He goes, well, look, I don't want to have to compete against you, but I will. And I remember when he said that, I was like, you little, how dare you? Who do you think you are? You know, I was, but I didn't say something like that. That would have been rude. I just said something like, well, we'll see about that. Right? And I walked out. I was like, oh man, I got to punish this kid. Right? And I remember I, I had the sense in that moment to call my board of directors. And I was like, this is what this kid's going to do. He's going to burn us down. We got to get to him first. Cut him out at the knees. I'm like, how do we do this? And I remember one of my board members was like, just, just cancel the meeting that night. It's like, what? He's like, just cancel. Let him run his thing in the week and you'll be back next week and the week after that and the week after that. I was like, cancel, but then he would win, you know? And I called another one. He was like, I think you just pray for that kid. Pray for God to move in his heart. And I was like, pray what, for judgment? Pray that God would crush his dreams? But they're on there like, no, you gotta love this kid. And I was like, I don't wanna love him. I wanna punish him. But then the irony struck me. I'm a college minister and here's a college kid, but I'm like, yeah, but not you. Because you threatened me, right? How do I love that kid? It was easy to love all these kids. How do I love that guy? You find compassion when you consider that they're made in the image of God. That's how. That's how. That's the first way. Jonah, you pity a plant. I pity people. People are made in the image of God. That means every man and every human being you see at your office or on the streets was made by God and for God. They have his image stamped on them. So God's country is not out in the wilderness. God's country is in the city because more things look like God here than out there because there's more people here. People are made in the image of God. So if someone is saying something crazy, being mean, being rude, and needs to be sequestered and imprisoned or whatever, just out, whatever someone's doing, whether they're saying something helpful or destructive, whatever, there's still a dignity to them because they're made in God's image. And to love God, the best way to love them is to love them. You want to love me? Love my kids. You want to love me? Love my kids. It'd be weird if you came to me and were like, Ben, dude, I think you're so cool. I want to be buddies with you, man. I want to be friends. I just feel like you and I connect. I want to be friends with you. I got to be honest. Can't stand your daughter, man. Just what, every time I look at her, I'm like, get her out of here, right? <laughs> what am I going to say? Yeah, that's cool, man. She does kind of suck. You know, like, no, <laughs> there's no separation. Even if she's being a little crazy, she's still my baby. And you, for you to love her, even when she is being difficult, is to show how great your love is for me, right? 
So I'm not justifying the behavior of Nineveh. God's not either, nor am I justifying the behavior of anybody that's rude to you. But I'm saying, but you can find compassion when you consider they're made in God's image. A person's made by God. He says, Jonah, you're pitying a plant, but people are greater than things. People are greater than things. So when you see that person and they've said something mean or done something crazy, and all you want to do is see them banished from your sight, remember, but God made them. They're made in his image. You pity the plant that rose up overnight and perished overnight? Nineveh's been around since Genesis 10. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know the difference between their right and their left hand? Commentators divide on that. Some people think he's talking about children. Jonah, if you hate all the kids, at least can you be, or hate all the adults, can you at least love the kids of Nineveh? Most commentators now don't believe that's the case based on the size of the city. They think God is talking about the ignorance of the people there. That God's not excusing their behavior, but he's saying, Jonah, they're acting like sinners because they're sinners. They're just fulfilling their job description, right? Everybody has a tendency to run from God, and that's what they're doing, right? And my tendency is to chase and intercept that destructive behavior. So they're doing what all humanity has done. Why? Because they don't know better. They're seeking for life by running from the author of life. It's crazy. But you can love them, Jonah, in that. I find compassion when I see that they're captives. They don't know what they're doing. They're like kids running around. They, they don't know. That's how Jesus could forgive on the cross. Forgive them, Father. Why? For they know not what they do. Sure, they knew what they would do. They crucified people every day. They knew what that nail was about to do to his hand. Yes, in a sense, they did. But spiritually and ultimately, no, they didn't understand. And so God prayed for mercy for them while they were killing him. Jesus prayed for mercy for them. We can have mercy for the Ninevites in our life. Why? Because we can see they're captives. They just don't know. They don't know. So John Perkins grew up in Mississippi and it was a tough place to live as a black man decades ago. He got out of there as soon as he could, and he moved to the West Coast. And while he was out there, his kid got involved in a ministry, and they led his kid to Jesus. John wanted to understand what was going on in his son's life. So he went to this church, and he accepted Christ. And as he began to walk with Jesus and see the grace of God that had touched his life, he realized those who know grace, show grace. And he said, my brothers in Mississippi are suffering. I need to go back there. I need to go back for their sake. If God came to get me, I need to go in God's name and help them. So he moved back and he began to work in the community. There was a night where he and some of his fellow pastors were returning from an event and some police officers pulled him over and began to beat him mercilessly. They put him in a jail and he said, inside the jailhouse, the nightmare got worse. At least five deputy sheriffs and seven to 12 highway patrolmen went to work on us. And he goes into detail about the horrors that they did in his book, And Justice for All. But then John wrote this, I remember their faces so twisted with hate it was like looking at white-faced demons. For the first time, I saw what hate had done to these people. Do you hear what he just did? These policemen were poor. 
They saw themselves as failures. The only way they knew how to find a sense of worth was by beating us. Their racism made them feel like somebody. But when I saw that, I couldn't hate back, but I could pity them. I said to God that night, God, if you let me get out of this jail alive, and I really didn't think I would, he said, I want to preach a gospel that will heal even these people too. He said, although the students who watched over me through that night were for sure I was about to die, I came out alive and with a new calling. My call was to preach a gospel that extended even to whites. And John Perkins did co-write a book with a former Klansman, someone who was running to God into hate and the mercy of God made a hater into a lover because that's what grace does. There's a tendency in us to run from God. There's a tendency in God to chase and intercept our self-destructive behavior. How can we do that? Because John Perkins could have pity. I see their captives. They're children that don't know their right hand from their left. Like Andrew Young said, I'm praying that God would heal their soul from the scourge of racism. I don't want to see that person destroyed. I want to see that person redeemed. What they're doing is evil, and I don't have to call it less than that. But I'm asking for redemption. I'm asking God to save. How can God have pity on the Ninevites? How can we have mercy for our enemies? You see what Paul told to Timothy, that they're captives, held captive to do the will of the devil and pray if perhaps God might grant them repentance. So Elizabeth Elliot, her husband was called to go minister among the Aka Indians. Soon as he met them, they killed him on the shores, murdered her family. Elizabeth Elliot understood these people were ignorant. They don't know what they're doing. So she took up her husband's ministry and ministered to them. And when they understood that her husband gave his life to tell them about the grace of God, then they instantly understood that the son of God gave his life so that they would be free. And the entire village repented and came to Jesus because of the mercy of God through Elizabeth. God is full of grace towards his enemies and praise him for it because he has grace for us. And then if you walk with him, it won't be long before he turns your face towards them. So I see they have the image of God on them. I see that they're ignorant. They don't know what they're doing. And then I find compassion because I consider the cross. And this is the funny part where it ends. I don't know if you caught that part where it just ends with the word cattle, which I think is so funny. God's like, shouldn't I have grace on the great city? Or at least on the people who don't know what they're doing? Or Jonah, if you don't care about the people, what about the animals, Jonah? Should I spare the city just for the, for the donkeys, man? Think about the donkeys, bud. <laughs> and it's meant to be silly on purpose. God's looking at him and saying, Jonah, I was gracious to you. I saved you when you ran from me. You were drowning in the depths of your sin, and I rescued you with that fish. They're drowning in theirs. Should I not rescue them too? Jonah, join me in that. Love me in that. And if Jonah would cast his mind back to Jonah 2, it'd be a lot easier to be kind in Jonah 4. And if you cast your mind back to what Jesus did on that cross, 
that while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. Your guilt, your shame, the things you did to others, to him, he took upon himself, buried the shame of it deep under the ground and rose victorious to extend love to you and mercy to you. You don't have to earn his favor. You don't have to earn his smile. It is free. He embraces you. He runs for you. He wants you. And when you fix your minds on that and then that person in the office is a jerk, you go, if God had that grace for me, I can have that grace for them. If God was kind to me, I can even be kind to them. God will push us to love the right things. And when we do it, that's when we'll join him in his mission and feel most alive. Corey Ten Boom. Her and her family were saving Jewish people from Nazis. They were discovered and imprisoned. Her and her sister were in a concentration camp. And she watched her sister's, her sister's health wither, and she watched her die. Corey survived. She became an evangelist, traveling the world, talking about the grace of God that will forgive anybody. And she writes about one moment she was speaking in Munich in 1947. And she says, as I spoke on forgiveness, now keep that in mind, she's in Munich, Germany, speaking about forgiveness. She said, solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. The German people wondering if God could forgive them. As people left in silence, one man worked his way to the front. And she said, instantly I recognized him. The blue uniform, the visored cap with its skull and crossbones, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. The place was Ravensbrook. The man who was walking towards me was the guard. I remembered him his face and the leather crop he would swing from his belt, I was face to face with one of my captors and my blood froze. He spoke. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that as you say, our sins are at the bottom of the sea. He extended his hand. I didn't take it. She said, I who wrote so glibly of forgiveness fumbled with my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He continued, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there. But since then, I've become a Christian. I know God's forgiven me for the cruel things I did. Will you forgive me? And he extended his hand again. And as I stood there, I whose sins had again and again been forgiven, I could not forgive. Betsy died in that place. It could not have been many seconds, but as he stood there, it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had to do. I had to do it. I knew it. Not only as a command from God, but from daily experience. This is interesting. She said, since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for the victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to return to the outside world and to rebuild their lives. No matter the physical scars, those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and horrible as that. But as I stood there, coldness clutched my heart. Jesus helped me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand, but you must supply the feeling. So woodenly and mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out before me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. 
The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and a healing warmth flooded my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands. Former guard, former prisoner. I'd never known the love of God so intensely as I did then. Even so, I realized it was not my love. I tried and I didn't have the power, but it was the Holy Spirit of God in me recorded in Romans 5, 5. The love of God has been shed abroad in the hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. That's what God's calling us to. No matter how far gone you are, you can be forgiven. I don't care what you've done. The grace of God can heal you. He's making enemies into friends. He's making instruments of hate into instruments of love. He's making broken people whole. That's what he does. And if you come to him, he will use you to help others experience the same. And so there's two groups I want to talk to today before we're done. And the first one are those of you who've never known the grace of God. The people of God, the Jewish people from the Old Testament used to read this book every day on the day of atonement. And after the end of that day, they would cry out, I am Jonah. And what they meant by that is I've run from God. I've been a silly little dove like Jonah and run away, but I want to come home. And some of you, you've never known the grace of God. And you're like, I think I'm too far gone. And maybe you're here to try to turn over a new leaf, but that's not what he's looking for. He is diving into the depths to come get you and draw you out. That's what he's doing. You put your faith in him today and say, Jesus, I want you to heal me, forgive me and change me. And he takes rebels who run and make them revolutionaries who run with him to love. And then there's others of us in here that you love him. You've tasted of his grace, but you're like Jonah with his plant. When the plant dies, you have a more emotional response than when they die. What hurts your heart more is when your phone fails, not when their life is failing. What hurts you more is when your career is not going the way you want, not when their life is perishing. And God's going to call you to love the right things. And it's going to be hard because there's some people we don't love. Let's just be honest. There's some people that get on our nerves, but God loves them. And we're going to get to the point where you go, I got to love them. And I can't. And we cry the same thing. I am Jonah. God, my tendency is to run. You deal with them. I'm going to go for mine. But God loves him. And if you love God, he's going to call you to love them. And if you get on board with that, he just might use you to make clansmen into ministers of the gospel. He might use you to lead former enemies and make them friends. He might use you to heal a city. Nineveh's Jonah's enemies, the Ninevites, were political enemies. I don't know if we can relate to that here, having political enemies. I don't know if that's something you touch down with. But what if you could disagree about ideas but care deeply for a person? Might this be a better city? Might we be a better people? Might that look crazy to the world? What if we were a church like that, where people came in with their guards up, but as they met us, guards came down and they go, they love me. What might it do to their hearts, to this city, if we would love like that? I am Jonah, but thank God that God's God, abounding in mercy, 
and steadfast love towards us. If you were encouraged by today's talk and believe it would be uplifting to others, then be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church Podcast.